So um, welcome and thank you all for joining us today. I'm Jessica Jones, Deputy Executive Director here at the National Security Institute at George Mason, Mason University Scalia Law School. We are a bipartisan think tank committed to finding practical solutions in real world national security to real world national security law and policy questions, as well as educating the next generation of leaders. We're extremely excited about today's event. We've got Anya Manuel and Nick Schifrin who will help us understand the US-China tech competition and how the US can continue to stay competitive. As a special bonus, Nick just got back from Ukraine, and so he's going to briefly share a little bit about his experiences on the ground. So turning to more to learn a little bit more about today's speakers, joining us from the West Coast, we have Anya Manuel, former diplomat, author, and advisor on foreign policy. She is co-founder and partner, along with former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, former National Security Advisor Stephen Hadley, and former Secretary of Defense Robert Gates in Rice, Hadley, Gates, and Manuel, LLC a strategic consulting firm that helps US companies navigate international markets. She is also the author of This Brave New World, India, China, and the United States, and the current executive director of the Aspen Strategy Group and Aspen Security Forum. Top of that, she also previously served as an official at the US Department of State, a special assistant to the Undersecretary for Political Affairs, Nicholas Burns, where she was responsible for Asia policy. Of course, we also have our moderator, Nick Schifrin, uh, Nick is the foreign affairs and defense correspondent for PBS NewsHour. He leads their foreign reporting and has reported from China, Russia, Ukraine, Nigeria, e Egypt, Kenya, Cuba, Mexico, and the Baltics. Just a whole globe for you right there this morning. Um, his series, Inside Putin's Russia, won a 2018 Peabody Award and the National Press Club's Edwin M. Hood Award for diplomatic correspondence. In November 2020, he received the American Academy of Diplomacy's Arthur Ross Media Award for Distinguished Reporting and Analysis of Foreign Affairs. As we mentioned a little bit earlier, Nick just returned from Ukraine, so we interviewed and shared the stories of many Ukrainians who are still suffering from Russia's invasion. Uh, so a little bit of the run of show today, um, Nick and Anya will begin with a conversation about their perspectives of Russia's war in Ukraine and what's going on, and then they'll turn the exam to an examination of the current competition in today's digital world and the impact it will have on evolving U.S.-China relations. Um, during the event, please feel free to submit your questions, and we'll try to, um, we'll try to get to them at the end. Um, Anya, please take it from here. Great. Thank you so much, Jessica, and thank you to all of you who are joining us this morning on the webinar. You know, when we were prepping for this, originally this was going to be a U.S.-China tech competition talk, but we thought uh, the Russia-Ukraine crisis is so relevant to everything that Nick and I will start having a conversation about that and then lead in to the other topics since they all bleed into each other. And, and Nick, maybe I'll start with this. It, you know, I, I just actually got off an, another Zoom webinar uh, for a company that has a lot of employees all around the world. And we started by talking about empathy and the role that empathy has um, played in the response to this brutal tragedy that's unfolding in Ukraine. And you were just there. And I think part of the reason that the silver lining in all this is the US and Europe is more united than ever. Republicans and Democrats are more united than ever. Business and US government are more united than ever. A lot of that is due to seeing what's happening on the ground. And in large part, that's your reporting and the other journalists' impressive reporting. So can you just say a little bit about what you saw when you were there for the last few weeks? Anya, thank you. And, and I know that people aren't here to listen to me. They're here to listen to you. So I will be brief, but I love that word because um, I think that it defines both what I do and so many 
of uh, the journalists who work all over the world and who cover conflict do. And I think every single one of us would say that, well, we covered Iraq, we covered Afghanistan, we covered Syria, we cover Yemen, we cover Somalia, we cover complicated um, wars all over the planet and cover their victims. Uh, and of course, no more uh, obvious than Syria and the millions of Syrians who have fled uh, years and years and years of, of a government trying to kill them. Um, and we have seen this unbelievable outpouring, more so that, than in the past, um, uh, for the Ukrainian families who have left. Uh, I won't uh, spend any time here talking about why I think one conflict gets more empathy than another, but in terms of Ukraine, I think there's two main points to, to point out. One is the nature of a state-on-state -state conflict is not something that we have seen, uh, if you will, as cleanly uh, in 80 years or so. This is a, a Russian Federation uh, with 10 times the size of military uh, invading and trying to destroy its neighbor. It's, it's almost simple when, when you put it that way. Uh, and because of what the Lviv mayor called with me, the David and Goliath fight, uh, that's how Ukraine sees it. Because of the nature of that fight, um, you do get this outpouring of, of sympathy uh, all over the world. And, and it is also because of the nature of what we believed were Russian war aims. And that was uh, really an existential threat to the Ukrainian government, a, a design to actually overthrow the Zelensky government and replace it with a kind of puppet or, or a rump state. Um, and so I think that that's what we've seen. We've seen this extraordinary empathy because of the nature of the conflict and the nature of the victims. Um, again, I won't dwell into this uh, too much, but you know, I haven't covered a conflict where the men had to say goodbye to their children and wives before. I'm not sure any of us have. You know, We covered families leaving Syria we covered um, young men leaving Afghanistan because they didn't see any future. Uh, um, you know, countless examples uh, elsewhere. This is a war in which we are covering grandparents and grandchildren, mothers, wives, women leaving the country and having to say goodbye. And those images on the train platforms that we've all seen, uh, those interviews that those of us who were there were doing, um, <clears throat> see if I get caught up uh, uh, just even thinking about it and, and talking about it, is uh, extraordinary. It's extraordinary because of the sacrifice that these families are making. It's extraordinary because of the nature of the fight that every single man has to stay. Uh, and again, that goes back to the existential threat that Ukraine faces. Um, and it's the nature of knowing that, that these um, goodbyes hopefully are not farewells uh, for all the men who are staying. And I think that has just struck such a chord. Um, and so, you know, I'll use that to, to segue in, into you and, and talk about what we want to talk about today. You know, Russia has struggled uh, against a united country of Ukraine, against a country that in the last eight years has really, really come to a level of national pride, a level of national identity that absolutely is very anti-Russian, certainly since 2014 and definitely in the last month. Uh, and so as Russia has struggled, it's reached out to China. Um, and so my first question to you is, as you get briefed uh, from the administration and talk to the, to the people making these decisions, as you think about China and Russia today, um, 
is the nature of Russia's request to China to, to help out, is, do you see it as tactical? Simply give us some money, give us some, some uh, individual items that we need, or, or is this a strategic shift um, that Moscow is willing to make in order to keep prosecuting the war and get closer to Beijing? Yeah, it, it's not tactical. And thank you, Nick. And I'll I'll get to that to a point, but I in a second. But I just wanted to kind of follow up on what you just said about Ukraine and why it has really captured the world the way it has. You know, I was at the Munich Security Conference a few weeks ago, two days before the invasion happened. And Zelensky flew in for a couple of hours to speak. And I have to tell you, behind the scenes, you know, people are in Munich, they're sipping their cappuccinos, everyone sort of thinks it's very exciting. And, you know, a couple of people in the hallway were saying, well, you know, maybe he's packed his bags and he's leaving. And he just shamed everyone in a way that was really powerful. And he said, look, I'm standing in the way of this brutal dictator who's, and it's not just about Ukraine, it's, you know, I'm in the path between Putin and Europe. And maybe that's true. Maybe it's not true, but it made everybody sit in silence and a little bit of shame for not doing enough. And I think that's why you've seen this outpouring of support, really unprecedented unity. I mean, I used to say, I used to talk to the Europeans all the time about what can we do jointly with respect to China? How do we, you know, think strategically about geopolitics? And, you know, people didn't, I think people weren't as grabbed by how much it matters as they are now. And we were sort of divided by the tyranny of petty differences. You know, well, we should rein in our social media companies before we do something on tech with respect to China. And now I think a lot of that has been wiped away and people sort of say, oh, okay. You know, we actually stand for something. We have values and we're gonna defend these values, maybe not on the battlefield in this particular situation, but boy, we're gonna prosecute this war with all economic means we have by pumping in uh, weapons. We can talk about this in Ukraine in a minute, but to an extent like unseen in the modern world to the point where I think now the Biden administration thinks, well, can Ukraine absorb anymore? Mm. Well, <laughs> um, and, 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 and Sorry, I'm just going to just jump in and, and double on your point, because I just pulled up my, my notes from Zelensky at Munich, which not only was uh, put everyone to shame, but, but I think helped Europe come to this um, generational shift that we can talk about and, and, and really help the world uh, find those values that you just talked about, Anya. And I just want to read one sentence uh, about Europe. He says, other countries resort to indifference. The indifference turns them into accomplices. This is what happens when you have appeasement. I mean, it was an extraordinary speech and the response has been extraordinary since. It has. And, and I would say for the past month, I've, you know, in my in my day, <laughs> day to day life, we help US companies navigate the world. That's what we do in our consulting firm. And so, as you might imagine, it, every CEO of a large American company has some sort of Russia, Ukraine issue. And I have just been astonished, you know, when the invasion happened before you couldn't really get people to pay attention. When the invasion happened, we had a series of emergency calls with American CEOs. They said, is this serious? Yes. Is it going to last a long time? Like as in, can we outweigh it? No. Are there going to be sanctions? Absolutely. And then you could just see everybody flip and say, well, these are our values. And within one day, you had American business, European business, you know, our Asian friends standing up and saying, okay, 
How do we protect our employees in Ukraine? How do we protect our employees in Russia, who frankly, it's not their fault that their um, president is a murderous thug. Um, how do we implement the sanctions and go way beyond the sanctions? In a way, and I think you've erased a lot of the skepticism between the tech community, I live here in Silicon Valley, and the US government in a way that you know, I hadn't seen in, in the past decade. So I think those are all small silver linings on a, on a very, very big tragedy. But let me oh, get to your point about, oh, sorry, sure. go ahead. No, no, yeah, absolutely. Jump yeah, in. I was gonna get to your point on China. So it, there, there are two thoughts about the China-Russian relationship. One is there's less there than meets the eye. And the other one is, oh boy, this is getting really, really serious and we need to sit up and pay attention. I think I am more on the second side of this, but there's evidence for both. So here's the evidence that it's getting really serious. Um, she and Putin clearly have a lot in common. They are, they feel very united, okay? As you saw by this declaration of undying friendship that was issued at the beginning of the Beijing Olympics recently. Um, you see the Russian general staffs meeting, more coordination between the two militaries in a way that we haven't seen before. The countervailing side of that is when you talk to Chinese business people in particular, they're not particularly excited about investing in Russia even before this whole conflict, right? I remember one conversation with um, Chinese property developers and I said, well, you have this great partnership with Russia. Are you doing a lot in Moscow? And they said, no, there's no rule of law there. <laughs> and I thought, oh, okay, <laughs> right? But now clearly, you've seen the Chinese government wobble on this and walk this tightrope. So it went from never ending friendship to the Chinese foreign minister saying at Munich, well, we believe in territorial integrity and that includes Ukraine to now it's pretty solidly what you're seeing out of the political side of the Chinese is towing Russia's line. This is all NATO's fault, NATO expansion, all of the arguments that we've heard from, from Putin and his cronies are being parroted by the Chinese, both in public and behind the scenes in track two dialogues that are going on. And you see, I think an important barometer is always, what are the Chinese censoring? They're censoring anything that's pro-Ukraine. So Nick Schifrin would not be allowed on the, on the Chinese internet, but they are letting through all of the pro-Russian propaganda, okay? And, and, and we're also seeing China echo that propaganda. And yet that tightrope that, you're, that you just described continues because as, as far as I've been told by, by US officials, as far as we can tell, China is sticking to the sanctions, uh, is, is not at least overtly or obviously breaking the sanctions uh, on Russia. So far, and especially this is where you see the Chinese business community, which of course cares much more about the European and American market than the Russian one, which is relatively small. I think it's 2% of China's trade, right? And so the big Chinese banks are, implementing Western sanctions because they're worried about secondary sanctions. You have not seen any move yet to supply military material to Russia, although frankly, that may be coming. No, I think the, the Biden administration rightfully took a very hard line last week. Jake Sullivan, Kirk Campbell and others met in Rome with senior Chinese representatives. Then President Biden had a call with Xi, 
on Friday to all the readouts that everyone has gotten and what's out there publicly. You know, they were very tough conversations, not a lot of comedy. And um, it was basically, if you supply arms to Russia, we will know because we're tracing all of these things. And you, China, are being irresponsible. And the most thing where I think the Chinese are being most irresponsible is they're feeding this Russian propaganda about there being American bioweapons labs in Ukraine, and that justifies a tougher line by Russia. That is completely untrue. And the Chinese spewing that propaganda actually makes this very, very dangerous. No, absolutely. And obviously it's dangerous because U.S. intelligence is concerned that, as the president put it, Putin has his back up. I think is that, that's how uh, Putin's back's up against the wall. Um, last night, that's what the president said. But regardless, clearly the intelligence community here has seen that Russian war plans did not go as planned, at least initially. Uh, and they are struggling. They are bogged down especially around Kyiv and, and in the South, they haven't made those, those movements uh, that they wanted. And so therefore, there's a lot of concern here, as we saw the White House announced yesterday about uh, cyber attacks. There's, there's a concern, of course, about the use of chemical and biological weapons, and even uh, some people worried about tactical nuclear weapons used in, in Ukraine. So that's why that propaganda is so worrisome, uh, because it, it could obviously be used as a false flag for some kind of uh, Russian Russian attack, um, and so that's that's clearly what the U.S. is worried about. That's right. That's yeah. right. Uh, let me go back to to that question that I asked before, and, and use it to to segue into the nature of what China can offer, and 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 a little bit slowly segue back into technology. So you know what what the U.S. officials I talked to say is that Russia needs tactical help in in Ukraine, but there's a larger question. Russia may need strategic military help, and, and what they mean by that is a willingness to convert to Chinese technology, a willingness to convert to a Chinese supply chain uh, if their military supply chain is going to struggle for the next 10 years, which was certainly is what US officials believe. So when you think about that question about whether Russia's request to China is tactical or strategic, and you think about what China can offer, uh, what should we be looking for? How are you thinking uh, about that question as Beijing and Moscow figure out a new relationship uh, launched by the Ukraine war. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. And the overall thing, there used to be this idea that these guys were equal partners, but you've seen for years that actually usually Russia is the supplicant to a much more powerful China. And you're seeing that even more now. Now, on the military hardware side, um, Russia has pretty advanced weapon systems. We've seen them not work terribly well, frankly. In, in Ukraine, um, unclear if it's the weapon systems or if it's the people operating them. But I, I do think there is a larger strategic shift here, as you put it, where in the next conflict for the next decade, is Russia gonna look to China to modernize its military further? I think so. There's a lot of pride in the Russian military establishment for their hypersonic missiles, for all of the things that they've built. But increasingly, the Chinese tech um, prowess is real. So for years here in Silicon Valley, people said, well, you know, the Chinese are good imitators, but they're not really that innovative. Nobody says that anymore. <laughs> the Chinese are really innovative and impressive scientists and impressive technologists. And so when you're looking at really advanced things, AI, 
drone technology, unmanned systems, quantum computing, which is just coming up, um, cyber, the Russians are pretty good at cyber too. Um, you can see, you could see the outlines of a strategic partnership between Russia and China that would be very worrisome to the US and our friends. No, absolutely. And I, and I think that, that, that what is new is, is Moscow's weakness when it comes to some of these either precision guided munitions or, or um, uh, in general, it, it seems a capacity to wage a kind of uh, a hybrid war, at least that's how the Ukrainians are fighting it. Um, and so I, I guess the question that leads to is, you know, can China come to Rus Russia's aid uh, in a larger question. So, you know, some of the things that I think we can talk about, uh, you know, semiconductors and, and chips, you know, can China uh, fill the gap that, that will be created by some of these sanctions? Uh, we can obviously talk about oil and, and purchases if, if Europe really does wean itself off. Um, in addition to some of the smaller questions about things like Russian banks now, now using union pay uh, and, and Huawei and Lenovo remaining in Russia. So what do you think when it comes to some of those categories? about what China can or, or uh, could uh, uh, come to Russia's, Russia's rescue for. Yeah, I'll put it into, into three buckets. One is oil and gas. Clearly the Chinese are gonna buy Russian oil and gas. It's cheap, <laughs> they need it. Um, by the way, you see the Indians <laughs> moving to buy Russian yeah. oil and gas <laughs> in a move that's very convenient for them and doing the trades not through dollars, but you know, clearing it through ruble and renminbi and other. Okay, so that's clearly that's gonna happen. Two, on the financial side, there's, there's one, at one, one level, the big Chinese banks are saying, no, we're gonna implement the sanctions. We don't want secondary sanctions placed on us, which would mean if any entity, the US and Europe would sanction any entity, not just that does business with China, but any entity, you do business that does business with China. So our banks then couldn't do business with the biggest Chinese banks. I think they're gonna to try to stay just below that line because it's too damaging to the Chinese economy. There is a second piece of the financial piece, which is so important on the technology, is that in fintech, the Chinese are actually way ahead of the West. Alipay, WeChat Pay, the combination with the digital renminbi, what they're doing on, on cryptocurrencies, they're, they're ahead. And that's partly because, in, I'll just speak for the US, our regulatory look at our fintech companies has been a royal mess. We don't know who's in charge. Is it the SEC? Is it the CFTC? Is it, is it the Fed? Who's doing this? And how do we, for example, have a rational cryptocurrency market that isn't sort of up and down? So through a number of reasons that are basically self-imposed, the Chinese are better than we are. And I would expect this, not all of a sudden, sometimes these waves start slowly and then you see them cresting. You're slowly seeing the wave where people are going around the correspondent banking system, which is this you know, traditional bank saying, okay, you, I know who you are and then I'm gonna send money to you in this other country. And they're saying, well, we'll just use Alipay or we'll go through cryptocurrency, why would we care? And that doesn't mean the dollar is immediately not the reserve currency of the world, but it, harms us a little bit. And you'll see more and more countries moving towards these alternative payment systems, which in five or 10 years could end up being really bad for US and Western dominance. Now that's really technical, but it's a really important point that's really not important. covered. Yeah. And, and talk about semiconductors, talk about chips. Obviously the US has um, 
you know, use the, the Huawei model, if, if you will, of export controls. Uh, they, they took great pride in warning Russia this was coming uh, and, and announcing some of this. How, how do you see that playing out um, and how important is that to Russia going forward, uh, losing uh, the access, if they will actually lose access and whether China can really, uh, really fill in the void there? Very, it's very important to Russia and they can't fill in the void immediately. So let me just take a step back on chips. Everyone talks about them all the time, but um, in broad brushstrokes, many of the world's most advanced semiconductor chips, the ones that power everything from your phone to your self-driving car to your smart thermostat um, are designed in the United States or in Europe, then manufactured in East Asia, Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, then shipped to China to be assembled into all of those products that are on your desk and in your office and then sent out to all over the world. So this is one unified system. And the idea that we had, you know, that really started during this Trump administration that we need to build a moat around Western technology and keep American tech in and Chinese tech out, doesn't work that way because the technology has already flown. It's one unified system. So you can't break it up that quickly. And so that means this is very complicated. So what China is trying to do is get better at chip design, very important, and having some of the most important fabs, which are these factories that make the chips and have them on Chinese territory. Now we're wise to that, we're export controlling. The worry there with our export controls is that it's important to have some of them, but in some cases we've overreached in a way that actually harms US technology. So I'll give you an example. The US, along with kind of the Japanese and the Dutch, the Netherlands, are the leading edge of building the machines that make the chips, semiconductor manufacturing equipment. And we have basically said, well, Americans, you can't send anything to the, to the Chinese, even like 1990s era technology. Now that harms our companies because we get the money from selling the older technology to China that then funds the R&D to keep us in the lead. But no one has said that to the Japanese or the Dutch or the Koreans, so they're happily selling more to the Chinese. So that's how these things have really unintended consequences. And so now getting all the way back to your question about how does this impact China and Russia? Right now, the Chinese can't really help the Russians by replacing Western and East Asian chips. But in five or 10 years, they might. No, absolutely. And I remember talking extensively to the Trump administration officials who were, who were designing <clears throat> their attacks on Huawei. And, and they acknowledged just that, that, that ironically, they would create uh, a level of autonomy inside China to be able to make these chips uh, and it wouldn't take more than five or 10 years. And they acknowledge that obviously the Biden administration has continued that uh, policy and, and it's obviously embraced it when it comes to Russia, but longer term, um, if Russia needs those chips from China, it will be able to, to buy it from there, but it'll take a few years. It'll take a few years, yeah, exactly. And I think you said something really important there, Nick, about how, um, how much continuity there was between the Trump administration and the Biden administration on these particular policies. So I think the Trump administration should get some credit for waking the world up to this technology race with China, but then handled it in a very, you know, 
build the moat around American technology in a defensive only way. The Biden administration is rightfully standing up and saying, oh, okay, not only do we need to keep Chinese tech out and our tech in, uh, but we need to stand up and actually compete. So that's what USICA is, the America Competes Act, all of these acts that are working their way through Congress too slowly um, for my taste that are saying, okay, we're gonna actually invest in US R&D. We're gonna invest in some fabs here in the US, but not all of them. Those are really important issues. And you know they're a little bit on the back burner because everyone is focused on Russia, Ukraine, but they're very critical uh, for the long-term strategic play that the US is making. So let's use your perfect segue to talk about uh, some of the US policy moves. Um, I will take this minute though to uh, mention that we would love uh, your questions as well. Looks like there's a couple uh, in, in the Q&A, but please put them there uh, and I'll get to them in, in a couple minutes. All right, so obviously one of the uh, highlights of, of US moves to compete uh, is, is the Competes Act. Uh, we've got a Senate version, we've got a House version. Uh, you basically gave the overview, but but just kind of lay out, um, uh, one, they're in reconciliation, so we don't know the final versions, but just lay out the, the idea of, of what those would be. Yeah, this gets so complicated, but it's really important. So uh, it does a couple of buckets of things. One, it vastly increases federal government research and development on critical technologies. That's really important. During the Cold War, the US government was spending almost at its height, 2% of GDP on R&D. Okay. We still spend about that much on R&D in the US, but a lot of that is from the private sector, which is important, but it's not necessarily strategic. So R&D on a new emoji, <laughs> R&D on you know, getting the best algorithm to make your social media feed most addictive. It's not quite what we think about in the national security community. And so it's important for the government to play a role there. And these acts will do that. The second thing they're doing is they're giving $52 billion, it's a lot of money, to move some for R&D and semiconductor specifically, about 12 billion of that, and a big chunk to build fabs, these huge factories that make the chips here in the US. Now that, um, I think the public reporting about this has gotten a little bit messy because people are worried about the chip shortage due to COVID and, you know, why can't we buy cars? And none of that is going to get fixed through this act because it's too slow. <laughs> okay. It takes years to build one of these fast. First of all, the money isn't even out. Then you got to get the people in the commerce department that can actually dole out the money. Then you have to build the fabs. It's going to take a long time. And we should put things in perspective. We're spending $52 billion. That's a huge chunk of change, but that's about three to four months of capital spend of this industry. This is just an enormously capital intensive industry. So we're gonna to have to keep creating incentives for private companies to do the same thing. I get a little worried when you have a big grant program like this that um, the squeakiest wheel will get the fabs. So you know the companies are understandably kind of lobbying and they're like, well, we're the American champion and we should get more subsidies. I worry about that because that's not necessarily the best technology winning but there's not a great solution around that. You should, I mean, you could do things like do it more with tax incentives and, and, and less with handouts, but that's kind of rough brushstroke what these two big acts do. There are important differences between the Senate version and the House version. Um, 
but I think they're not important to go into here. Mostly the oh, house version tax on a lot of build back better that didn't get right. through. The exactly, exactly. And, and certainly that, that, that concern that you just raised about the squeakiest wheel getting the money is, is one that, that was raised while these bills uh, were being discussed. Um, uh, from the outside, it, it didn't seem like uh, a, a lot of debate actually happened over that, and obviously they passed. So we'll, we'll, we'll wait for reconciliation there. And then let's just uh, mark a couple of steps by the executive branch uh, and, and executive orders um, over the last few months, and then and then I can uh, transition to to a few questions, which I see already. Uh, so in in January, uh, we saw two major actions uh, to restrict Chinese technology. Uh, and increase expertise inside the US. Uh, the first is changes to visa policies. Uh, so foreign students, professionals and STEM fields could remain uh, and work in the US uh, for a long time. And we saw an executive order on ensuring responsible development of digital assets calls for a government wide approach to regulate digital assets uh, and directs treasury and other uh, agencies to study the impact of uh, cryptocurrency and financial stability and national security. Uh, so talk about those, how important you see those are. Yeah, and let me start with the digital assets one. Um, largely the cryptocurrency market in the US has been the wild west, okay? There are some responsible actors, there are some that are just trying to make a big uh, quick buck. So how do you harness this new technology in ways that are genuinely beneficial? You have to take a look at the difference between blockchain and cryptocurrencies, right? Cryptocurrencies right now are largely speculative. Blockchain is a really, really important fundamental technology that's going to change the way we send money. It's going to change the way that we do kind of mortgages on our houses and property titles and things that it's a critical technology. We are nowhere in regulating it, as I kind of discussed in response to a previous question. So what um, the White House, it was Ann Neuberger and Dalip Singh who did really important work on this executive order that just came out. They're trying to take this regulatory mess where no one knows who's in charge. Everybody has their little fiefdoms. No one is thinking about it from a national security perspective. The point I just raised that China is actually eating our lunch in these technologies. Um, and they're trying to say, okay, we're, we're gonna herd all these cats and come up with something rational. That has been harder than anyone expected. And that's why in that executive order, you see a lot of, you're gonna do a study and come back to us in two months with the answer. But it's at least a really important step in the right direction. Because what you're seeing right now is some of the more responsible actors in the space are getting hit with you know, the SEC, SEC actions against them while others are out there doing who knows what. So it's time to rationalize the space. Easier said than done. It is easier said than done. And I suppose before I, I get to some questions um, um, at 12.35, yeah, I've got to, you know, once one big 30,000 foot question that occurs to me to ask you, uh, given the title of, of what uh, we're talking about today and moving beyond Russia, um, is the US more competitive? than it was say five years ago when it comes to technology and China and, and these huge strategic questions we're talking about? Oh, I'm glad you asked that. It's, it's a hard question to answer because you know the US has a really dynamic tech innovation ecosystem. We do, we just still are the best in the world, okay? Now, China is rapidly catching up and the way I say this to my students at Stanford is, 
you know, it's those mirrors that say object in the mirror are closer than they appear. That's kind of where China is. They're rapidly catching up. And the important thing to remember is that we don't need to win on all technologies and we definitely don't need to shut the Chinese out. In fact, we can learn a lot from them. But there's sort of five and a half areas where I firmly believe that the US and our friends in Asia and Europe need to be the best. And that is semiconductors, we've already talked about. Artificial intelligence, which is such a big amorphous thing, but the way to understand it is it, it's like electricity, it's multi-purpose tech and it's gonna um, power everything else. So we need to stay in the lead on that. 5G and 6G, which will run all communications networks and the internet of things. So you need to make sure that we've got the rails that kind of run all this stuff. Uh, some parts of biotech that bleed into bioweapons, but actually there's a lot of areas where we can and should be cooperating with the Chinese. FinTech, we've already talked about. And then quantum computing, which once it's done right, will break all the cryptography and blockchain and make cybersecurity a total nightmare. So those are kind of the areas I think about as, as being ones where we need to lead. You may quibble around the margins, but that's broadly where people think we are. That leaves a lot of room for cooperation. Healthcare, social media, um, e-commerce, clean technology. There are a lot of areas where we don't need to be competing or shutting the Chinese out. So I think that's important to understand. And and on and I'll use this my my last question to segue into questions five G six G you know one of the things that certainly the Trump administration was so focused on uh, was trying to prevent Chinese five G from expanding um, especially in Southeast Asia but also Latin America I mean the, the numbers of countries who were signing up to a Chinese uh, what Matt Pottinger called authoritarianism in a box. Uh, both 5G, but also a backdoor for its intelligence agencies. Uh, one of the, uh, not criticisms, but one of the challenges to that policy was, well, where's the alternative? You know, um, the, you know I, I remember Minister Luhut in Indonesia asking me this, you know, fine, if you don't want me to buy China for pennies on the dollar, what do you guys got? Um, do you believe that, that the US and the West, obviously Nokia and Ericsson are part of this, uh, are, are finally beginning to have an alternative to that uh, authoritarianism in a box that Huawei was offering? Not as fast as I would like. No. So this gets complicated, just like chips. Huawei is technically very, very good. And they were 30% cheaper than Nokia and Ericsson, partly because they're being subsidized, partly because their labor is cheaper, but they're just good and cheap. So a lot of countries were signing up. A lot of companies in the West got out of this space because it's actually not a great business. It's really low margin. It's much better to sell software or do internet than, than delay the rails, <laughs> right? Um, and then Nokia and Ericsson were, even though the Trump administration opened this big path for them, they were hesitant to run into the breach because they were getting so much of their business from China. Yeah. So they didn't want to antagonize the Chinese. That's how this always gets infinitely complicated. So are we better now than we were a few years ago? Yes, in the following sense. There is this um, idea that has gained ground called the ORAN network, where instead of having it vertically integrated all of the radio towers and the tubes, kind of the rails and having one software solution, separating that out and saying, well, we don't care who does the baseline, there's gonna be a software solution on top and we're basically gonna separate this out and then more people couldn't compete. Now the incumbents don't love that, like Nokia and Ericsson don't love that either, but that's actually the way the world needs to go. Hmm. 
Um, and that segues into uh, a guest question, unfortunately, no name. Um, how does uh, Belt and Road, how does Belt and Road Initiative uh, increase China's competitive edge, uh, if at all? Yeah, the Belt and Road Initiative is a double-edged sword. So on the one hand, boy, it's increased Chinese influence around the world, especially in this tech space, because often they'll buy authoritarianism in a box, as Matt puts it. Um, and with that comes not just Huawei, but then Tencent and Alipay and, and lots of surveillance software <laughs> and things of that sort. Um, on the other hand, in Belt and Road, there were sown the seeds of its own demise so that I saw you know, five, six years ago, the countries I was interacting with in Africa, Latin America, everyone was so enthusiastic about China and Belt and Road. Oh, look at all these concessionary loans we're getting. Well, a lot of them have kind of wised up and said, well, maybe this is money that comes with strings attached. The loans aren't that concessionary anymore. Actually, these aren't grants, like we have to pay them back. And then suddenly the Chinese own our ports. So mm. and people have kind of wised up a little bit. So it's not a pure play win for China. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and China itself, as, as you say, has, has pulled back a little bit. Uh, some of these investments proved not great investments, uh, at least when you look at the bottom line strategically is another issue. Um, uh, but that, that leads to a couple of questions on, on India uh, and, and the subcontinent as well as Pakistan, uh, I think. So let me combine a couple of these. So, so the large question on India, um, is, is India likely to become isolated if it keeps supporting Russia and violating sanctions? Uh, and you've obviously written the book literally on, on some of that, uh, uh, the answer to some of that question. And then Stephanie Zabel asks, uh, expands it out a little bit to Brazil, India, and Pakistan. Uh, do we see uh, those countries, uh, as she puts it, resentful to the Western coalition, to the Western sanctions? Uh, and does that create a greater opening for China and or the China-Russian alliance? Mm -hmm. It's such an important question. So let me start with India and then move to that one. Um, India is in a very tough spot. And, you know, in my view as an Indophile, you know, I used to go there four or five times a year. I went the State Department, I helped negotiate a big treaty with India. I really wish India well. I do believe they're our natural partner. I do believe ultimately we'll get there. It, this has been a rough, bumpy couple of weeks. Um, you can see India abstained twice at the UN. You know, the world overwhelmingly said voted against Russian aggression in Ukraine. India abstained not once, but twice. Why did they do that? Most of their military equipment comes from Russia. And you could say, well, why are they doing that? Just buy from the West. There are actually some good reasons because the Russians give them their most advanced stuff and the West is still a little bit hesitant to give India their most advanced stuff. So there are good reasons for this. But to my view, it's, you know, the West has been a real partner to India in its worry about China and Chinese encroachment up in the high Himalayas, integrating India into the quad, really trying to bring India onto the governing board of the world. And would it have cost that much to just vote with the rest of the world? You know, I think it would have been an important symbolic thing for India to say as the world's largest democracy, hey, we stand with these values. And then you could still probably cynically buy cheap oil from Russia because you need it because you're and many of your citizens are impoverished. 
but you know, I was pretty critical of the Indians in that front. So does that make them increasingly isolated? No, I think the West will give them a pass. Hmm. <laughs> is the is, is unfortunately where we are. It, to, it, it, it certainly happened before, and, and obviously, as you pointed out, India is the linchpin in, in many ways in the Asia policy on China. It is, but in the in the sense that I don't know. Do does the West need India more? Or does India need the West more? It's a little bit unclear wh which way that. Right. On the other non-aligned countries or the middle powers, these are becoming increasingly important. And you see it mostly, I think I see it less in Brazil. Brazil is really inward turning right now and really fixated on its own presidential election, which is going to uh, be another political earthquake, I think, in Brazil. Um, Pakistan has already cast its lot with China. I don't think that changes as a result of this conflict. India, we already talked about. The real... Um, complexity here is actually with the UAE and Saudi, kind of the Sunni kingdoms that were solidly Western allies. And I think here the Biden administration understands that maybe they haven't um, paid enough attention to that part of the world in a high level. China especially, but also Russia pay a lot of attention to that part of the world. So whenever I'm there, huge Chinese delegations are there. They're doing a lot of business. The business is good. It's not all negative and it's not all authoritarianism in a box. Like they're really doing a lot of good business. And um, I think those Sunni kingdoms, as you know better than I do, Nick, are very worried that the Biden administration is gonna conclude an Iran nuclear deal that they think will strengthen Iran and make things much more dangerous for them. I think they're upset that the Biden administration reacted slowly, kind of not at the highest level, when Houthi rebels, financed by Iran, were shooting missiles at the UAE and what they've done in Saudi. So there's a lot of patching up to do there, but I think ultimately we will patch it up with them. And, and the patching up, uh, if, if I may interject, is a little personal for the Saudis. Uh, as we all know, President uh, Biden has not picked up the phone to call MBS. He is sticking to his, his guns, uh, so to speak, and, and only calling King Salman and having Secretary Austin call MBS, obviously the Secretary of Defense of the United States, no, no, no schlump in terms of that position, but uh, MBS is clearly interested in a presidential call that, that continues to not come. So uh, we can talk a lot about that, but I will ask the other question, which did come about, uh, about Saudi um, uh, and, and this, uh, this person cites a Wall Street Journal uh, report recently that Saudi's considering converting some of its future oil contracts from dollar to the yuan. Um, yeah. I, I don't uh, personally, I haven't confirmed that, but you know, if, if it's been reported by the journal and others, uh, fascinating uh, step. It, 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 and the question is, is this a legitimate threat to the dominance of the dollar uh, as the global reserve currency, or or is that concern overstated? Yeah. This is what we talked about earlier. It's, it's, a, it's a wave that you can see slowly coming and that won't crest for five or more years, but it's coming. And you know, my worry is not entirely about the dollar as a reserve currency. That helps us because it keeps our borrowing cheap, it means we can borrow a ridiculous amount of money at very low interest rates. The other part I talked about, which is the payment systems, kind of the rails that run the financial, um, the financial system of the world is that the West has been so dominant there 
that we say, okay, you want to send money from, you know, Switzerland to Nigeria. Well, there better be know your customer who's sending what to whom, when there's a lot of regulations on that. All of this new FinTech stuff we're talking about, they're like, well, whatever, we'll go through Yuan, we'll go through currency pair through a cryptocurrency in here. And it's much cheaper, faster, better than, than Swift. And frankly, some American blockchain technology, I, I obviously have a, I have a bias here because I serve on the board of Ripple, which is kind of our foremost blockchain company. It's just way faster, way better, more accurate, way cheaper than Swift. And we're not pushing our, our technologies here. And so the Chinese are winning. So I think that piece is actually more important than in the short run than the dollar being the reserve currency, because it means we won't be able to do these swift sanctions again in a couple of years. No, absolutely. The, the, the power of the sanctions, which of course is questioned and, and a whole other discussion um, just gets eroded over time. And that's a really fascinating issue. Uh, and one that I know the US is looking at a lot. Uh, we've got uh, a few minutes left. Uh, and so we can turn to a question that brings us back a little bit to where we started. And that is more about Putin uh, and Russia. Uh, and its relationship with, with the West and China. Uh, so I'll, I'll trim this a little bit. Um, Putin uh, um, has told the West, this is the question, don't meddle or I will start a nuclear war or could start a nuclear war. At least that's, that's, that's the suggestion and certainly uh, one that the US is taking seriously. So the question is, if his bluff is called, global war is possible. If the West gives in again, nobody seriously can believe that Putin would stop there, and 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 there's a comparison to Hitler in in the in the question. Um, so the concern this questioner has is uh, international bullying will continue unless and until Russia's bluff is called. Uh, I'm wondering, you know, this is a little bit beyond uh, the topic of, of China, but how, how do you see that question um, when it comes to these big moments uh, between? Uh, the U.S. between the West and, and Russia and, and China, as uh, we have three meetings in Brussels on Thursday, which are among the most important of a U.S. president with European allies in decades. Yeah, they really are. And I'd love your perspective on this, too. I know the Biden administration is very concerned about chemical weapons use. I think less concerned about biological weapons because they're so hard to contain and then you're really harming your own people. Um, and nuclear weapons you know, he exercised with them in Belarus you know, a couple of weeks ago. It's stuff, all this kind of stuff that was kind of beyond the pale two or three months ago now is getting into the realm of the real. I do think that Putin understands that if he uses a nuclear weapon, we will retaliate and it will rain horror on the Russian people and it will probably be the end of him. There is a little bit of speculation, which I'd love to get your take on. You may know more about it, that when Putin a couple of weeks ago said, oh, we're going to put our nuclear weapons on high alert, not much actually happened. And so there's some thought that there are people around him who are saying, okay, this is a step too far. And if you go there, you're gone. So um, is it an important, dangerous thing we need to consider? Yes. Is it likely to happen? I don't think so, but I'd love your take, Nick. What do you think? Yeah, just just briefly, uh, since since I want to let you finish up, and then um, we can wrap it up at one. But but yeah, just briefly, I, I think the the concern about tactical nuclear weapons, although 
God, I hate that phrase. Uh, a nuclear weapon is a nuclear weapon, just just an awful amount of of firepower. But nonetheless, non-strategic nuclear weapons. These are weapons that don't take out cities. Um, it, the the use of that is concerning to the US, um, as far as I can tell, not because of any chatter that they've picked up specifically about it, but because that is the Russian doctrine. Gerasimov, the, the, the equivalent of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, has been very clear and written uh, multiple times over the years about the use of tactical weapons and what some people in the US call escalate to de-escalate, that, that's not a Russian phrase, but the idea of uh, escalating two tactical nuclear weapons is, is one that Gerasimov has clearly written uh, quite often. And so the U.S. is very concerned about that simply because Russia has said that's what it intends to do. That said, Russian doctrine does not allow for everything that's happening in Ukraine in terms of the number of troops getting way out over their skis in terms of their supply line, uh, uh, Russian troops getting bogged down. None of this is in Russian doctrine. In fact, Gerasimov has written specifically about not getting into these kind of quagmires. So, you know, we take what they've written with a grain of salt. But as you say, Anya, you know, definite concern about chemical weapons, uh, not only for intelligence pickups, as far as I can tell, uh, but also because of these, these kind of false flags uh, that, that Putin uh, has raised himself, that the UN ambassador, Russia's UN ambassador has raised. And, and we talked about China parroting the, the mention of chemical and biological presence in, in Ukraine, of course, uh, is exactly what Russia did in Syria before we saw some attacks there. So we're certainly worried about that. Uh, so I mean, just in the last couple of minutes we have, just, just zoom us out. You know, I think that Europe question is important. Um, you know, how important are these meetings on Thursday? How important is a presidential trip to Europe right now? And I know all of the focus is, is on Russia and what NATO does on the Eastern flank, but it's not really only about that. It is it is about uh, a European, US, uh, and, and including the G7, you know, East Asia uh, approach to the world, it seems right now, that goes uh, beyond Russia and includes China. Yeah, I think you're so right, and you've already said it. These meetings are enormously important, and the unity we've seen between the US and Europe hasn't been like this. I think I said at the beginning of this, you know, we used to be divided by the tyranny of tiny differences. With the Europeans, you know, every time I go over there to talk about China, it would be like, well, you know, but this and tax policy, and you're like, great, that's important, fix all those things. But really, we have certain values, and there are other powers out there that have different values. And I think that argument is now one. I mean, just I've seen the sea change because I see it mostly with respect to China. Talking to the Europeans about China two years ago was a lot of well, we're going to be in the middle, we're going to be neutral, we'll continue to trade with China, because especially the Germans, the Germans are like the last ones that have a positive trade balance with China, because they send, sell them lots of um, machines for their factories, and lots of cars. And um, it, just the sea change in the last two years, and pushed over the edge by this war is, is unbelievable. I mean, you just saw German foreign policy turn around 180 degrees in the last four weeks, right? From, oh, we're not doing very much. And, you know, we, we're a modest country. We inflicted so much pain on the world. We can't do anything to, okay, we're gonna add substantially to our defense budget. We're gonna um, be really involved in Ukraine. And we made a huge error relying so much on Russian oil. I think you also see that thinking bleed into 
Europe's approach to China, which is going to be much less neutral and much more values-based the way that ours is becoming values-based. Yeah, and, and certainly there's still details we worked out. You know, uh, Germany's resisting some some further sanctions on Russian oil and gas, but but you're absolutely right. The the generational shift in Berlin uh, is is the uh, poster child, if you will, of how Europe has shifted on Russia just in the last few weeks, and the shift on China has been remarkable as well. Uh, and I think we can thank the war, if if that's the right way to put it, but also thank Zelensky. You know, Zelensky has been very clear at making this black and white, making this. Good, and good versus evil. Um, and I think the world's responded and certainly Europe's responded to his, his rhetoric. So with that, uh, we're out of time. Um, Sonia, thank you so much. Uh, it's been my pleasure. And, and thank you to all of you for participating and, and asking your questions. Um, if I may uh, just pitch toward the next event, which is on March the 30th. Uh, we talked a lot about this. Uh, definitely want to tune in for this. Crypto and national security, how to validate American innovation and verify US national security. Uh, and that's gonna include a NSI advisory board member who we all know, Juan Zarate. Uh, and so you can find out more about that uh, at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Uh, and so for the whole team, thank you. Uh, and thank you, Anya. Uh, and thank you for all participating. Uh, really appreciate it for, for a great hour of conversation. Thank you, Nick. And thank you, NSI. Great to talk to you and happy you're back safe and sound. <laughs>